Section 3 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy Koenig. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 9. Section 3. Selected Works by George Chapman. George Chapman, fifteen fifty nine to sixteen thirty four. George Chapman, the translator of Homer, is of all the Elizabethan dramatists the most undramatic. He is akin to Marlowe in being more of an epic poet than a playwright, but unlike his young compeer of the mighty line, who in his successive plays learnt how to subdue an essentially epic genius to the demands of the stage, Chapman never got near the true secret of dramatic composition yet he witnessed the growth of the glorious Elizabethan drama from its feeble beginning in Gorboduc and Gammergurton's Needle through its very flowering in the immortal masterpieces. He was born about 1559, five years before Marlowe, the morning star of the English drama, and he died in 1634, surviving Shakespeare, in whom it reached its maturity, and Beaumont, Middleton, and Fletcher, whose works foreshadowed decay. From his native town Hitchin he passed on to Oxford, where he distinguished himself as a classical scholar. Then for sixteen years nothing definite is known about him. His life has been called one of the great blanks of English literature. He is sometimes sent travelling on the continent as a convenient means of accounting for this gap, and also to explain the intimate acquaintance with German manners and customs and the language displayed in his tragedy Alphonsus Emperor of Germany, which argues at least for a trip to that country. In 1594 he published the two hymns in the shadow of night, and soon after he must have begun writing for the stage, for his first extant comedy, The Blind Beggar of Alexandria, was acted in 1596, and two years later he appears in Francis Mears's famous enumeration of the poets and wits of the time. Hereafter his life is to be dated by his publications. He occupies a position unique among the Elizabethans because of his wide culture and the diverse character of his work. Though held together by his strong personality, it yet can be divided into the distinct groups of comedies, tragedies, poems, and translations. The first of these is the weakest, for Chapman was not a comic genius. The Blind Beggar of Alexandria and An Humorous Day's Mirth deserve but a passing mention. In 1605, All Fools was published, acted six years earlier under the name The World Runs on Wheels. It is a realistic satire, with some good scenes in character drawing. The gentleman usher is full of poetry and ingenious situations. Monsieur Dolin contains also some good comedy work. The Widow's Tears tells the well-known story of the Ephesian matron, though coarse it is handled not without comic talent. In his comedy work Chapman is neither new nor original. He followed in Johnson's footsteps and suggests, moreover, Terence, Plautus, Fletcher, and Lilly. He has wit, satire, and sarcasm, but along with these poor construction and little invention. He was going against his grain, and we have here the frankest expression of pot-boiling to be found among the Elizabethan dramatists. Writing for the stage was the only kind of literature that really paid. The playhouse was to the Elizabethan what the paper-covered novel is to a modern reader. This accounts for the enormous dramatic productivity of the time, and also explains why the most finely endowed minds in need of money produced dramas instead of other imaginative work. By the time he wrote his comedies, Chapman had already won his place as poet and translator, but it earned him no income. 
Pope, 125 years later, made a fortune by his translation of Homer, but then the number of readers had increased, and publishers could afford to give large sums to a popular author. Chapman takes rank among the dramatists mainly by his four chief tragedies, Bussy d'Ambois, The Revenge of Bussy d'Ambois, The Conspiracy of Charles, Duke of Byron, and The Tragedy of Charles, Duke of Byron. They are unique among the plays of the period in that they deal with almost contemporary events in French history, not with the purpose of exciting any feeling for or against the parties introduced, but in calm ignoring of public opinion, they bring recent happenings on the stage to suit the dramatist's purpose. He drew his material mainly from the Historiae Sui Temporis of Jacques-Auguste de Tou, but he troubled himself little about following it with accuracy, or even painting the characters of the chief actors as true to life. In these tragedies, more than in the comedies, we get sight of Chapman the man. Indeed, it is his great failing as playwright that his own individuality is constantly cropping out. He alone, of all the great Elizabethan dramatists, was unable to go outside of himself and enter into the habits and thoughts of his characters. Chapman was too much of a scholar and a thinker to be a successful delineator of men. His is the drama of the man who thinks about life, not of one who lives it in its fullness. He does not get into the hearts of men. He has too many theories. Homer had become the ruling influence in his life, and he looked at things from the Homeric point of view and presented life epically. He is at his best in single didactic or narrative passages, and exquisite bits of poetry are prodigally scattered up and down the pages of his tragedies. Next to Shakespeare, he is the most sententious of dramatists. He sounded the depths of things in thought which theretofore only Marlowe had done. He is the most metaphysical of dramatists. Yet his thought is sometimes too much for him, and he becomes obscure. He packs words as tight as Browning, and the sense is often more difficult to unravel. He is best in the closet drama. Caesar and Pompey, published in 1631 but never acted, contain some of his finest thoughts. Chapman also collaborated with other dramatists. Eastward Ho, in 1605, written with Marston and Johnson, is one of the liveliest and best-constructed Elizabethan comedies, combining the excellences of the three men without their faults. Some allusion to the Scottish nation offended King James. The authors were confined in Fleet Prison, and barely escaped having their ears and noses slit. With Shirley he wrote the comedy The Ball, and the tragedy Chabot, Admiral of France. Chapman wrote comedies to make money, and tragedies because it was the fashion of the day, and he studied these latter with exquisite passages because he was a poet born. But he was above all a scholar with wide and deep learning, not only of the classics, but also of the Renaissance literature. From 1613 to 1631 he does not appear to have written for the stage, but was occupied with his translations of Homer, Hesiod, Juvenal, Musaeus, Petrarch, and others. In 1614, at the marriage of the Princess Elizabeth, was performed in the most lavish manner the memorable mask of the two honorable houses or inns of court, the Middle Temple and Lincoln Inn. Chapman also completed Marlowe's unfinished Hero and Leander. His fame, however, rests on his version of Homer. The first portion appeared in 1598. Seven books of the Iliad of Homer, Prince of Poets, translated according to the Greek in judgment of his best commentaries. In 1611 the Iliad complete appeared, and in 1615 the whole of the Odyssey. Though he by no means reproduces Homer faithfully, he approaches nearest to the original in spirit and grandeur. It is a typical product of the English Renaissance, full of vigor and passion, but also of conceit and fancifulness. It lacks the simplicity and the serenity of the Greek. 
but has caught its nobleness and rapidity. As has been said, it is what Homer might have written before he came to years of discretion. Yet with all its shortcomings it remains one of the classics of Elizabethan literature. Pope consulted it diligently, and has been accused of at times reversifying this instead of the Greek. Coleridge said of it, the Iliad is fine, but less equal in the translation than the Odyssey, as well as less interesting in itself. What is stupidly said of Shakespeare is really true and appropriate of Chapman, mighty faults counterpoised by mighty beauties. It is as truly an original poem as the Fairy Queen. It will give you small idea of Homer, though a far truer one than Pope's epigrams or Cooper's cumbersome most anti-Homeric Miltonisms. For Chapman writes and feels as a poet as Homer might have written had he lived in England in the reign of Queen Elizabeth. In short, it is an exquisite poem in spite of its frequent and perverse quaintnesses and awkwardness, which are, however, amply repaid by almost unexampled sweetness and beauty of language all over spirit and feeling. Keats's tribute, the sonnet On First Looking into Chapman's Homer, attests another poet's appreciation of the Elizabethan's paraphrase, Keats diligently explored this new planet that swam into his ken, and his own poetical diction is at times touched by the quaintness and fancifulness of the elder poet he admired. Lamb, that most sympathetic critic of the old dramatists, speaks of him as follows. Webster has happily characterized the full and heightened style of Chapman, who of all the English playwriters perhaps approaches nearest to Shakespeare in the descriptive and didactic, in passages which are less purely dramatic. He could not go out of himself, as Shakespeare could shift at pleasure to inform and animate other existences, but in himself he had an eye to perceive and a soul to embrace all forms and modes of being. He would have made a great epic poet, if indeed he has not abundantly shown himself to be one, for his Homer is not so properly a translation as the stories of Achilles and Ulysses rewritten. The earnestness and passion which he has put into every part of these poems would be incredible to a reader of more modern translations. The great obstacle to Chapman's translations being read is their unconquerable quaintness. He pours out in the same breath the most just and natural and the most violent and crude expressions. He seems to grasp at whatever words come first to hand while the enthusiasm is upon him, as if all others must be inadequate to the divine meaning. But passion, the all-in-all -in, -all in poetry, is everywhere present, raising the low, dignifying the mean, and putting sense into the absurd. He makes his readers glow, weep, tremble, take any affection which he pleases, be moved by words, or in spite of them be disgusted and overcome their disgust. Ulysses and Nausicaa from the translation of Homer's Odyssey Straight rose the lovely morn that up did raise fair-veiled Nausicaa, whose dream her praise to admiration took who no time spent to give the rapture of her vision vent to her loved parents, whom she found within. Her mother sat at fire, who had to spin a rock whose tincture with sea-purple shined, her maids about her. But she chanced to find her father going abroad, to counsel called by his grave senate, and to him exhaled her smothered bosom was. Loved sire, said she, will you not now command a coach for me, stately and complete? fit for me to bear, to wash at flood the weeds I cannot wear before repurified? Yourself it fits to wear fair weeds, as every man that sits in place of counsel. And five sons you have, two wed, three bachelors, that must be brave in every day's shift that they may go dance. For these three last with these things must advance their states in marriage, 
and who else but I, their sister, should their dancing rites supply? This general cause she showed, and would not name her mind of nuptials to her sire for shame. He understood her yet, and thus replied, Daughter, nor these nor any grace beside I either will deny thee or defer, mules nor a coach of state and circular fitting at all parts. Go, my servants shall serve thy desires and thy command in all. The servants then commanded, soon obeyed, fetched coach, and mules joined in it. Then the maid brought from the chamber her rich weeds, and laid all up in coach, in which her mother placed a mond of victuals varied well in taste, and other junkets. Wine she likewise filled within a goat-skin bottle, and distilled sweet and moist oil into a golden cruise, both for her daughters and her handmaids' use, to soften their bright bodies when they rose cleansed from their cold baths. Up to coach, then, goes the observed maid, takes both the scourge and reins, and to her side her handmaid straight attains. Nor these alone, but other virgins, grace the nuptial chariot. The whole bevy placed, Nausicaa a scourge to make the coach-mules run, that neighed and paced their usual speed, and soon both maids and weeds brought to the riverside, where baths for all the year their use supplied, whose waters were so pure they would not stain, but still ran fair forth, and did more remain apt to purge stains for that purged stain within, which by the water's pure store was not seen. These here arrived, the mules uncoached, and drave up the gulfy river's shore that gave sweet grass to them. The maids from coach then took their clothes and steeped them in the sable brook, then put them into springs and trod them clean with cleanly feet, adventuring wagers then who should have soonest and most cleanly done. When having thoroughly cleansed, they spread them on the flood's shore, all in order. And then where the waves the pebbles washed, and ground was clear, they bathed themselves, and all with glittering oils smoothed their white skins, refreshing then their toil with pleasant dinner by the riverside, yet still watched when the sun their clothes had dried. Till which time, having dined, Nausicaa with other virgins did at stool-ball play, their shoulder-reaching head-tires laying by. Nausicaa, with the wrists of ivory the liking stroke struck, singing first a song, as custom ordered, and amidst the throng made such a show, and so past all was seen, as when the chaste-born, arrow-loving queen, along the mountains gliding, either over Spartan Tigetus, whose tops far discover, or Eurymanthus in the wild boar's chase, or swift-hooved heart, and with her Jove's fair race, the field-nymphs sporting amongst whom to see how far diana had priority though all were fair for fairness yet of all as both by head and forehead being more tall latona triumphed since the dullest sight might easily judge whom her pains brought to light now sicca so whom never husband tamed above them all in all the beauties flamed but when they now made homewards and arrayed ordering their weeds disordered as they played mules and coach ready then Minerva thought what means to wake Ulysses might be wrought, that he might see this lovely-sided maid, whom she intended should become his aid, bring him to town, and his return advance. Her mean was this, though thought a stool-ball chance. The queen now, for the upstroke, struck the ball quite wide off the other maids, and made it fall amidst the whirlpools, at which out shrieked all, and with a shriek did wise Ulysses wake. Who sitting up was doubtful who should make that sudden outcry? and in mind thus strived. On what a people am I now arrived? At civil, hospitable men that fear the gods? Or dwell injurious mortals here, unjust and churlish? 
like the female cry of youth it sounds. What are they? Nymphs spread high on tops of hills, or in the founts of floods, in irvy marshes, or in leavy woods? Or are they high-spoke men I now am near? I'll prove and see. With this, the wary peer crept forth the thicket, and an olive-bough broke with his broad hand, which he did bestow in covert of his nakedness, and then put hasty head out. Look how from his den a mountain-lion looks, that all embrued with drops of trees, and weather-beaten hued, bold of his strength, goes on, and in his eye a burning furnace glows, all bent to prey on sheep or oxen or the upland heart, his belly charging him, and he must part stakes with the herdsmen in his beast's attempt, even where from rape their strengths are most exempt. So wet, so weather-beat, so stung with need, even to the home-fields of the country's breed Ulysses was to force forth his access, though merely naked, and his sight did press the eyes of soft-haired virgins. Horrid was his rough appearance to them, the hard pass he had at sea stuck by him. All in flight the virgins scattered, frighted with this sight about the prominent windings of the flood. All but Nausicaa fled, but she fast stood. Pallas had put a boldness in her breast, and in her fair limbs tender fear compressed. And still she stood him, as resolved to know what man he was, or out of what should grow his strange repair to them. The Duke of Byron is condemned to death. From the Tragedy of Charles, Duke of Byron By horror of death let me alone in peace, and leave my soul to me whom it concerns. You have no charge of it. I feel her free. How she doth rouse and like a falcon stretch her silver wings, a threatening death with death, at whom I joyfully will cast her off. I know this body but a sink of folly, the groundwork and raised frame of woe and frailty, the bond and bundle of corruption, a quick course, only sensible of grief, a walking sepulchre or household thief, a glass of air broken with less than breath, a slave bound face to face to death till death. And what said all you more? I know, besides, that life is but a dark and stormy night of senseless dreams, terrors, and broken sleeps, a tyranny devising pains to plague and make man long in dying, racks his death. And death is nothing. What can you say more? I bring a long globe and a little earth, am seated like earth betwixt both the heavens, that if I rise, to heaven I rise. If fall, I likewise fall to heaven. What stronger faith hath any of your souls? What say you more? Why lose I time in these things? Talk of knowledge, it serves for inward use. I will not die like to a clergyman but like the captain that prayed on horseback and with sword in hand threatened the sun, commanding it to stand. These are but ropes of sand. End of section three.